brought to you by Tiger Buford. Hello, orthopedic friends. Welcome to Inside Orthopedics. My name is Tiger. I'm an orthopedic industry insider and retained recruiter for early stage orthopedic companies. Thank you for listening. This is episode number 24, titled Anatomy of a Startup, Q&A with Dr. Brett Sanders, founder of Tensor Surgical. Brett and I met about a week ago. This is our second conversation. Brett Sanders is an orthopedic surgeon who has reinvented transosseous arthroscopic tunneling fixation with some very clever, cost-effective tools. His company is called Tensor Surgical. This is a chance for you to look inside a surgeon-founder startup that is disrupting the orthopedic industry, in this case, arthroscopy. I asked Brett a few questions and let Brett do the talking. Enjoy. Okay. All right, Brett, we are live. Thanks All for right. your time. Thanks for your time. You're in Chattanooga right now? Yeah, we're in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's a great place to be. Yeah, excellent. Um, so let's just jump right into Tensor Surgical. So uh, fascinated by your story. So, so tell me, take us way back to the beginning of the idea. What was the origin? What was the aha moment? Well, it probably goes back to residency um, um, and just thinking about um, uh, surgery and, and innovation. And I'd had a couple of ideas and seen them kind of come and go. And then when I got into, into my shoulder fellowship, uh, which was up at uh, Mass General, we, we were having a little bit of uh, uh, transosseous technique was coming out at that time, or it was about to come out, basically. Um, and uh, we were hearing a lot more about value, and um, and those two things were kind of coming together. And um, I'm a fan of history, so I think you know we can learn a lot by going back and seeing. You know, there's nothing really new under the sun, and uh, there's there's been some um, really really smart people in the past that have done a lot of work on transosseous, and and uh, it kind of just fell together that that was a kind of a no brainer in the value based era. And, uh, you know, up at Mass General, this goes all the way back to, you know, E.A. Codman, the first uh, hmm. guy who, you know, described cuff repair back in the early 1900s. And so, you know, the first cuff was done transosseously, and it could be argued that he was actually the father of evidence-based uh, medicine and, and value-based medicine, looking at outcomes compared to cost. And uh, that didn't work out so well for him. He basically got run out of town and... Know, died a pauper. <laughs> That's kind of what happens to uh, uh, people who are disrupting the um, uh, the status quo. First, first mover. Yeah. First, first, yeah, very first mover. And and then you know throughout throughout history, um, you know guys were still working on that problem. Uh, Resch and, uh, and Krishnan, and more recently, uh, we've had uh, interest from uh, Castagna, Burks, Tajidin, and. So all these things kind of just uh, congealed, and um, I felt felt that we had the, the skill set to put it together and make it work. Um, so we decided to go ahead and, and go after it. 
Um, so it's, it's been a fun ride. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, on paper, if you look at the, the science and the biology and the biomechanics and, and the cost, on paper, it's really hard to argue against uh, the concepts of transosseous, but uh, the real conundrum comes with uh, business dogma, essentially. Mm. Right, right. So, so tell me what. So, you had an idea to bring transosseous fixation to the 21st century. So, what did you do first? Uh, what did you tell me oh, how you started? Yeah. So, so, you know, like, like I guess, like many. Um, Surgeons who are tinkerers, you know, had ideas, but and, and had a had a background in, in engineering, biomedical engineering, but uh, had never really had any pragmatic experience doing that. So, you know, didn't really know what I was doing in the beginning. But I hooked up with a biomedical engineer and sort of cut our teeth on a class one positioning device uh, called Quantum Quantum Ops, which is a mechanical arm positioner and a beach chair positioner for for shoulder surgery. So kind of learned a bit about the innovation process and teamed up um, kind of in the old school way of, you know, one surgeon, one engineer, just, just being together in the OR constantly, working nights and weekends. And that that was something that appealed to me. I'd, I'd had a lot of frustration with sort of the modern paradigm of the big corporate system and, you know, six-week turnaround or six months to get into the lab and just the slow process, frustrating process. Mm-hmm. So I liked that one-on-one um, interaction, and then and then uh, um, we got together. This is uh, Keith Harper and I, the engineer, and I pitched the idea of this uh, transosseous device that would be reusable. So, you know, there were some first movers, for instance, like the Tournier Arthur Tunneler, which was disposable, but it, it had some problems with targeting and the disposability and the cost, and et cetera, and I felt like... It was a relatively easy improvement technically, um, and, I, and I felt that that had to be done essentially by a surgeon because to take mm. that to the normal corporate side, it would come out uh, where you would lose the value play. And so you know, I felt like we could do that and we could get the techniques uh, down. And you know, when I was training, I think we, we, we talked in our, in our last phone call about sort of the change in and training and fellowship training, what the, the effect that that's had on on surgeons um, in the modern era. You know, when when arthroscopy first came out, there were specialized, unique instruments, curved shavers to get to the back of the meniscus, and and all these specialized um, devices. But you know, now we can do most of the things with a spinal needle and a PDS, and and uh, with technique over over design. So I felt like that that was there, and you know, and plus the fact that you know we're routinely talking about things like arthroscopic latergés and arthroscopic latisse transfers and very advanced arthroscopic techniques. So to me, it was a real, really easy um, jump to just, uh, or really just a sidestep to just go transosseous suture management um, and design something that made it really easy to make a transosseous tunnel, and then there really wasn't a whole lot of extra skill set, uh, just a slightly lateral move of your existing skill set to do that and then preserve the value by making it reusable. And then we also eliminated some steps and, and made it a lot easier to the point where you can, you know, put a tunnel in in 28 seconds and it's really not much, you know, the tunneling part is the easiest part. So, yeah, so 
so I'm always fascinated by the design iteration process. So did you guys just prototype and cover sawbones um, and then go through the class one process and then use it in surgery and then keep changing the design? Or, I mean, tell me how you iterated. Yeah, this uh, that that was a key uh, thing for me. You know, in my in my uh, area, it was difficult to. There's a lot of scrutiny on surgeons, surgeon designers, because of uh, PODs and everything. And the the fact that it was class one and there was no implants allowed me to um, be able to do this. You know, sort of out of private practice. Um, but yeah, the first design was totally different. It was it was. Uh, actually a two-piece assembly and um, uh, we about on the seventh or eighth iteration we, we got something that was just spot on you know targeted every time never really missed had a had a had a great built-in uh, failure mode and that you know like some reusable things that have fatigue failure and just suddenly break or, or have a catastrophic failure so we, we, we had a design which is modular it allowed uh, various geometries of the tip to allow tunneling in other areas of the body, and the failure mode over time was just uh, uh, sort of loosening on the grip of the suture, and you could see that and change the barrel out if you needed to. So we, we arrived at that through uh, trial and error and a, and a lot of uh, just creativity. I mean, I, mean, um, uh, I think, uh, you know, some of these aha moments just kind of, you know, came in the shower one morning and this kind of thing, you know, when your subconscious mind is, is sorting out problems <laughs> while you're sleeping, it just sort of hits you. Yeah, uh, common, common tale. But you, but you have to fail along the way to, uh, to find those. Exactly. you got to put a lot of work in, and, and I think your subconscious brain sort of figures out the problems without your conscious knowledge, and then it just sort of hits you one day. But it takes yeah. a lot of hours to get there. Absolutely. So how how long did the seven or eight iterations take? Are we talk, talking about months or, yeah, or about years? Two, yeah, about two years to to really get it um, where where we where we needed to be. And then when we got there, um, it was obvious that this thing works and it's going to work. Right. And right. Uh, and then it was just making it pretty and doing the clinical work and you know studying the outcomes and. We did a suture passer as well as a suite, so we wanted to have, uh, you know, soft tissue repair, uh, sort of modular, limited disposable, uh, reusable, you know, repair uh, set for the shoulder, so that the surgeon could could open up things a la carte and uh, and and have a solution for this for for the cost containment era, or if you're competing on cost. Um, you can actually do that, you know, where we're going to bundled methodologies now with payment. And you, you hear stories uh, of, of surgery centers around the country saying, you know, don't bring your cup tear here unless it's just one anchor or like hmm. one or two anchors and basically you're paying the patient now. And that's just not feasible. I mean, you can't repair a cuff with one anchor or most of the cuff tears you can't repair with one anchor. In, in fact, you need, you know, Many times the reason why you're getting dog ear deformities in the cuff and bird beak deformities and all these things is because you really need like six anchors and it's just too cost, you know, too, too expensive. There's just no way you're going to do that. So you settle for four or maybe five anchors, maybe six if you're talking biceps too. So in my mind, we we're trying to get to this um, um, clinical situation where the physician can decide what's clinically relevant and then add in and, and make a decision about the what is the value 
um, for the technology that he's using and actually solve that conundrum. And now we're to the point where we're doing eight, 10, or 12 fixation point tough repairs with, with uh, an unlimited cost ceiling per case because the device, once you open it, you could use it and make unlimited uh, repair uh, or fixation points. So we're getting really excellent high fixation point density repairs and uh, not sacrificing at all clinically, and um, we've solved that cost ceiling problem. Wow, that's, you know, there's no trade-off anymore with fixation and cost. So how does it compare cost-wise? So I know there's no such thing as an average repair, but like an average uh, an average repair, you see four well, or six anchors. Yeah, there is some data on that, and it was done with the Tournier disposable device, which is, you know, roughly double uh, the cost of ours. So it should, you know, but the, the data by Lazarus out of Rothman uh, showed about $1,000 a case savings uh, with transosseous techniques in, in his uh, paper. Um, but basically the cost savings go up as the size of this tear, you know, increases. Mm. Uh, so our system is about the cost of one anchor, um, you know, plus plus some suture cost. Um, so, uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's a one anchor repair, um, you don't get, you don't see a whole lot of cost benefit, although one tunnel gives you two fixation points. So it's like two anchors. Mm -hmm. So you can actually make, in my opinion, you make a better single tunnel cuff repair is actually a very good repair. Might, might even be better. I, I rarely say that. Um, it's at least non-inferior is, is my claim right. for, for most of these things. But as you go up, you know, you get into massive tears, five anchors, six anchors, seven anchors, three tendon tears, Medicare population, you know, the older patients that have the bigger tears, trying to do them in your surgery center, this is where you really start to see the value. Right, and, right. And again, it's another thing that, that, that uh, another, another paradigm that I'm kind of trying to drive is, you know, like I know that's true. Like I can say that I've done that with hundreds of patients, I've studied the outcomes. You know, ASES scores in the 90s, starting start in the 40s, going up into the low 90s. We're getting excellent outcomes, much less pain. But what I'm trying to drive is this paradigm in terms of teaching other doctors. Um, you know, we, we do a, a, a lot of hybrid repairs. So we just do one anchor, and we do multiple fixation points transosseously where we get excellent biology. You get no inert material in the repair site. You have cost savings, multiple small diameter 1.9 to 2.9 millimeter fixation points. And then, you know, if you have a concern over being able to tension that or concern over bone quality, whether it's theoretical or otherwise, you can retension it with one anchor and put one anchor for cortical fixation, and you've got the best of both worlds. So, you know, um, uh, surgeons aren't known for changing their minds easily. So, uh, you know, I think uh, a whole new paradigm like this is, is going to be slow, but in the same vein as, you know, open open arthroscopic cup repair, going to mini open, going to arthroscopic, uh, what I'm trying to do is, is facilitate that through, you know, full anchor to anchor transosseous hybrid, and then people will slowly realize that, you know, transosseous is effective and you can do it as a standalone procedure in many cases. Yeah, so yeah. So tell me what the typical learning curve training is. Um, is, it, is it done open first? Or it, it can be. It can be. Um, I, actually, I actually don't think that's necessary. Mostly, it just depends on the surgeon's risk tolerance and confidence. Essentially, some guys will just go right at it and, and it's fine. 
um, other guys want to do it, you know, open first, which is which is perfectly fine, or, or you know, certainly, uh, you know, use a sawbones first. But when 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 you see the technique, it's basically working through an eight millimeter arthroscopic portal, and we use a two point nine millimeter all medially, and so there's really no there's very little downside to putting a tunnel in around an anchor to practice, you know, put them between anchors, like a four anchor repair with a tunnel in between. I call that anchor bounded construct. Uh, that's a good way to ease into it or do a small uh, repair with a, just a single tunnel and simple sutures. There's really no downside. If you don't like it, you can just pull the sutures out. Uh, you know, you have a two millimeter tunnel, you can put a five, five anchor in that and the anchor actually works better because of the diameter mismatch. And the lateral tunnel is 1.9 millimeters, so you're really not losing anything. You can always bail out and go back to an anchor. So right. um, we don't have a lot of device-related com- complications. It's mostly, I would say, for the beginners, it's mostly concern over just not being familiar with the suture management process and you know, just concerns over maybe tangling your sutures or unloading a suture or something like that. But Again, that's the cool thing about tunnels once you get into them, and this is what I get excited about teaching people. You know, you can unload, you know, a tunnel and pull five more sutures back in, you know, unlike an anchor where you mm-hmm. firm your fixation point. You know, if you unload an anchor, now you've got an anchor where you can right where you want to be. So if, yeah, if, yeah. If, you, if you completely mess up a tunnel, there's really zero consequence to that. You know, even if a suture cuts through the bone or something, there's very little consequence to that, you know, in the long yeah. run. Yeah, let's let's talk about bone quality. Where are, are there? What percentage of cases is the bone just too soft? Or uh, yeah, great question. This is a this is a, probably the most common sort of fear I would say um, that we encounter. And uh, you know, I always tell people it's 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 in my practice anyway. It just hasn't really been an it's, it's an issue. Maybe one or two cases a year that I see that you know it's a real problem. Um, it's kind of an overblown issue from days past where we were, you know, days before the reverse arthroplasty where we were trying to fix 80-year-old, you know, females with irreparable cuff tears and they have butter bone and, you know, we those people get arthroplasties now. So, you know, we're fixing cuffs younger, um, smaller, and we know that they progress. Um, and so we're just not seeing that horrible bone quality um, as much. Um, in my practice, honestly, and in most most guys who do this around the world, I think would probably agree with that. You, of course, bone mineral density is like a Gaussian distribution, so you're going to have, you know, in the in the in the middle of the pack or plus or minus one standard deviation from the mean, you know, going on the right side of the curve. Basically, everything works. You know, if your bone's hard, uh, anchors, tunnels, it's, anything works. It's dealer's choice. If you go to the far left end of that distribution and the bone is like just air, you know, there is no bone, it's like butter, um, everything fails. So sutures cut through and anchors pull out. The difference is that when anchors pull out, they float in the subacromial space or cause third body, third body wear and damage to the cartilage. So there's a downside to that. Or they create huge voids, anchor voids, you know, 18-millimeter, 14-millimeter bone voids that you have to graft or stack anchors in later or whatever. Um, and so actually one of my go-to treatments for large bone voids is to tunnel through them and fix laterally with some sort of augmentation, whether it's anchors, screws, or ACL buttons. I've done them all. 
You know, you can fix uh, cortical, you can augment cortex in various ways, um, but then we let the cuff heal biologically to that, uh, you know, to that clot. Um, I think there's there are still some situations where it's kind of a in between zone where the bone's sort of soft. Where I don't hesitate to throw an anchor in if I think it's necessary, but I can always back it up and load share with sutures. Hmm. Another interesting concept that is not talked about with regard to bone quality is that you'll have varying bone quality even within the same case. So it's very common in cuff tears to have, for instance, a chronic supraspinatus tear that has um, bone loss or osteopenia in the old chronic tear, and then they'll have a, an acute on chronic infraspinatus tear. So one centimeter away from that you know, soft bone is very hard bone posteriorly, and then you go up in the biceps groove and the bone's really hard. So, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, it's not a... It's not as simple of an issue as uh, as it's you know sort of been uh, made out to be in the past. I think a lot of that is kind of you know anchors marketing, say, you know saying that they're going to you know, increase the pullout strength you know of the bone or, or whatever. But you know again, that's conflating the issue. I mean the the repair strength, the the weak link in the repair strength is the tendon tendon suture interface. And and you know it's not it's not having a, a strong anchor pull out a bone that you really want. You want what what you want is a strong construct. So you want suture tendon interface to be strong, and that has to do with fixation point density per surface area. So the number of sutures uh, crossing the repair site, which is what Scott Rodeo has shown and and others, and and every study in orthopedics basically has shown that. Um, so, you know, this is a philosophical concept that I've come to that I'm trying to promulgate, actually, which is in the literature, if you follow this, what you'll see is is, is sort of um, glee over transitioning the failure. We've transitioned the failure mode from the bone to the tendon. And so now we put anchor constructs in that are basically too stiff and they can't match the modulus or they overmatch the modulus and they transect the tendon and they truncate the tendon in half, and then you have to revise that with a patch allograft or a, an SCR. And so, you know, it's like, let's let's think about this for a second. You know, we've kind of gone down this path with blinders on. We've taken the failure mode in, in the, in the um, you know, in the mechanobiology of this complex, you know, soft tendon going to Sharpie's fibers, going to the bone, you know, the one tissue in the body that heals with regenerative capability is bone. Bone can, can regenerate bone. You know, there's, there's very few things in the body that can actually regenerate, and bone's one of them. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a hole in a bone, like it can heal, and you can come back later and you can fix into that hole. But the rotator cuff tendon is one of the worst healing things in the body. It's just like a, uh, a scar, you know, and it, and it yeah. degrades over time. It's got horrible bio- biologics. I mean, that's the future is to figure out that problem, the biologics. So why would we want to take the failure mode from the bone and put it on the worst tendon in the body? Makes, makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. We've just followed the, you know, the anchor trail to its logical conclusion there. So that's why and I'm we, kind of backing that yeah. back that up a bit. And we talked about this earlier. Um, the, the, the solutions in the future will be biologic solutions. And so you need to take cost out of the fixation system to right. make room for that. 
Exactly. That's one of my dreams to do with this is, you know, it's so obvious that transosseous techniques and technologies synergize with other tech technologies so easily um, that you can, if you, you can take your cost off your commodity hardware, your anchors, you know, um, I mean, there's, 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 we went, we went from metal metal anchors to peak anchors to resorbable anchors, resorbable vented anchors, double loaded, you know, triple loaded, triple loaded with different colors, tapes. There's not much else to do with that, <laughs> you know. I mean, everybody's got that. That's fine. Uh, they're you know they're, they're they're great, but they're optimized. They're sort of maxed out, and they're commodities. So you know where we want to go in the future are patches and um, innovations that allow us to increase the biology, increase the speed, the cost effectiveness, the value per unit of treatment that we can impart and and uh, allow us to continue to, to strive to apply new technologies. You know, I'd I'd like to make you know. Um, biological augmentation uh, standard of care you know in every case you're augmenting the tendon right now it's it's, it's extra extra cost and you know you, you when you're doing a superior capsular reconstruction by the time you're done with that that costs the same as a reverse arthroplasty wow and wow. so we've, there's you know, no, we've got no room yeah there's no room for the biologics on top of that Right, and we've we've got some users that have done some biologic uh, SCRs with with our tunneler, and they're doing six or eight hundred dollar SCRs, you know, with autographs the way it was originally described out of Japan, and that's a game changer, you know, um, to be able to actually do that. Um, in the U.S., we have the resources where we don't always have to do that. In other countries, there are situations where that that's all you're going to get, and so it's going to increase access there. So how many help help me understand how many cases has the tensor technology been in to date? Uh, thousands. Uh, wow. Probably in the three thousand range. And U.S. only? Um, um, most of it's in the U.S. Um, you know, we've done labs and and we've had a lot of interest uh, internationally. Um, and. Um, there has been some adoption there, um, yeah. but uh, do you have the C mark for Europe? Uh, yeah, that's um, we we actually held on that. That was a business decision um, of just trying to stay alive and, and grow organically. And you know, we, we didn't we weren't able to fund enough to kind of uh, get everything we wanted with one go. So we kind of sure, had to stay sure. alive and. And uh, get some revenue, and and then you know, kind of bootstrap and get the interest, et cetera. Uh, so yes. that, yeah, that's so tell, help, tell me how, who's the how big is the team? Um, you know, is there? Uh, I'm sure you're outsourcing manufacturing, probably outsourcing regulatory filings. Uh, uh, what and how is it funded? Right. I mean, we started basically with seed and angel funding locally, mostly around here in Tennessee, and we had some VC involvement um, and kept it kept it super lean, um, which means it's a slow grower, but we're able to sort of eke it out and stay alive. You know, and it's hard to compete with uh, with uh, these uh, big companies that have tons of resources. So we've just kind of eked it out with uh, basically. Um, sort of a three-man, you know, three or four-man team. Most of the uh, regulatory stuff uh, was was outsourced in the beginning, and fortunately, this is a, a class one device, so 
um, there's not a huge regulatory burden. Um, and uh, so that was, uh, that was a blessing. Uh, yeah, still, still, the work still has to be done. Um, so right. how, are you, how, are, how are you getting, I've, I've seen the website. It's, it's pretty well explanatory. How are you getting the word out? Um, marketing, sales? Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. We ha- we've done a few. Um, you know, most most of our uh, cash is used to just keep the lights on and and keep 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 the quality high and the safety good. Um, but whenever we've done some advertising, we've gotten a, a, a huge return. You know, the guys, the sales guys that are helping us, you know, tend to say like, I can't believe the return on this. Like, we run an ad and we get all these calls back. You know, it's like that never works. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, when we do it, it seems to work. Uh, but um, you know, again, we're we're just uh, uh, the bang for your buck there. Um, it could be questionable, so we've we've kind of gone to some guerrilla type marketing, email type stuff, and website. And uh, you know, frankly, a lot of it's me on LinkedIn, uh, putting out techniques and and uh, word of mouth at meetings and and that sort of thing. So we're hoping we can hit a critical mass that way. Um, yeah. You know, so. Excellent. So, uh, well, this is great. Um, so how would a surgeon learn more about the technology and maybe get some training? Where should they go? Uh, com is the website, um, or they could, they could uh, email me or find me on LinkedIn, Brett Sanders, B. Sanders at sportsmed.com is my email, um, and uh, we're 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 getting to the phase now where we're getting some interest from some academic uh, organizations that are likely going to be doing some studies, you know, independent studies, and um, we're starting to run labs and kind of travel around the country. So. But anyone uh, who contacts me who's interested is more than welcome to visit visit me and just in the OR and see it in action. Um, I try to put videos out where it's sort of self-explanatory and you know, like I said, the, the there's there's a lot of trepidation, uh, uh, you know, understandably so, of uh, changing changing techniques. But you know, like we discussed before, the advantage of this is a in most cases, you can do a sawbones, look at the techniques, and and you know we can uh, help help through the first case or two, and then uh, just proceed because it's it's pretty much uh, just transoxys repairs have been around forever. You know we're doing them all day long in the quad, the triceps, and the hip. You know all over the body. So um, hopefully it's a pretty low uh, activation energy once you get going. Probably you know three to five cases and with a learning curve and. And then uh, you know integrate it off to the races. And like yeah. you said, there's no you're not burning any bridges. There's no downside. Uh, yeah, it's not like you're all in and you put you know huge you know anchor voids or something. And then you know if you if you if you get if you struggle, you're you're kind of stuck. Uh, you can always just bail or add anchors. You know, uh, that's that's basically how I started when I was integrating everything and and. Uh, slowly adopting it, you know, I started with uh, mostly hybrids and, you know, anchor-bounded or tunnel-bounded constructs where you would do one anchor and then tunnels around it or vice versa, you know, medial and lateral, and we went through all those iterations and and uh, kind of settled in on this lateral anchor hybrid that we just uh, submitted to arthroscopy techniques. 
and hopefully that'll be coming out soon. Well, terrific. Thanks, thanks, Brett. Thanks for sharing sharing your uh, invention and uh, new techniques to the world. I'm sure more people will hear about it and and go there. And uh, it will stay in touch. It's uh, I love surgeon founder companies in orthopedics. Um, they, you guys have a knack for obviously nailing the clinical advantage, the, the, the clinical problem really well. Um, yeah, this, this particular one, um, you know, one of these days, maybe I'll, <laughs> I'd like to do something sexier than this, but I think for the moment, you know, this is what's necessary. This is pragmatic. And the only way this is getting done is if uh, a surgeon does it, you know, so yeah, that's kind of right. right or wrong, uh, picked up this burden and, and I'm trying to do it. Um, but, you know, it's fun The the, uh, you know, developing things is starting to be more accepted in, in the surgeon community. And it's starting to be noted that there are plenty of things that, that we notice that, that, that are hard to get done for various reasons in the, in the corporate world or whatever. And so it's been uh, really fun. We're, we're meeting a lot of uh, interesting people and a lot more surgeons are, are doing this kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's really fun to get get together and get that passion back. You know, kind of like in residency again, where everybody's all excited and they're 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 doing something that they're learning and they're having fun doing it. And it's a nice way to kind of reinvigorate your career and kind of stave off burnout. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, well, thanks. Hey, thanks a lot for your time. This is great stuff. I'm sure that you will get some uh, some interest just from this podcast. Hey, I appreciate your time. Thanks yeah, so much. Thank, thanks, Brett. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye. Okay, yep. Bye-bye. Okay, that's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed the inside look into Tensor Surgical. As always, don't forget to subscribe and thank Tiger Buford for your next hire. Keep innovating, my friends. <laughs>